Hey, Warehouse, how we doing? Okay, four of us are awake. That's good. Um, okay, how many think that Scott must have got a moonlighting job and at some, you know, Thai restaurant down the street? Um, you know, Albert comes, and dude shows up styling in a suit and stuff, and it was funny this week. He said, yeah, people are just giving me grief about that. It's like, Warehouse, man. And his response was, yeah, so I can wear what I want, right? Oh, well, yeah, that's what everybody meant. You can wear what you want. Come as you are. Just didn't expect you to come in a suit. Well, I'm dressed like this, like your waiter tonight, um, because it's uh, what we call around this place World Focus Weekend, this place being Lake Avenue Church, um, where well, at least once a year we pull aside a little bit and just kind of reflect on what God's doing in the world and what our, our place is in it. Uh, If you've been a part of the warehouse community for any period of time, then you know that its global focus is in the nation of Cambodia, and specifically a place called Kampong Cham, which is a province, a Muslim province in the midst of a Buddhist nation. I could tell you a lot of stories about why Warehouse and Lake Avenue Church is is doing a project there, but I'd just rather get to some of the action. Um, And you'll get to hear a little bit about Cambodia, but... Equally specifically, you're going to hear a lot about HIV-AIDS tonight. Um, I'm going to introduce our special guest in a little bit, um, who's here from World Relief, to talk about this. Um, But I want to share a little bit of of my own journey into this and some observations I've made uh, over the years. And um, they really begin with kind of an admission more than anything else. I remember the first person that I ever held in my arms that I knew had AIDS. And it wasn't that many years ago. Maybe six or maybe six years ago now. I can still see that person really clearly because it was the first person I knew that had AIDS. Not just HIV, but had AIDS. They were manifesting a whole bunch of, of, of uh, symptoms. And I'm not very proud of it, but my response was, I know, I know it's okay, 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 I know it's okay. I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. It's hard. Your head tells you one thing, your heart tells you another. And sometimes the two don't communicate very clearly. We're going to look at a passage together tonight about that idea of communication. Heart, head, where they meet, where they don't, and talk about it in the context of HIV. We've, we, we, we've called this weekend, uh, what did we call this weekend? Boy, it's been four services now. My brain is kind of tired. We called this week, weekend telling stories of love in the age of HIV AIDS. Who is my neighbor? Um, if you've got your Bible, dig out Luke in the 10th chapter. Luke is the second book in the... Newer Testament. And it's a pretty familiar story. So you'll know it. Even if you don't have a Bible, if you want to grab one, there's still a few left back there on the the table if you want to get one for yourself. I'm going to read for us, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving them, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down at the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he was traveling, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Pretty familiar story, huh? For a lot of us, especially if you grew up in the church. I want to talk just a little bit about this story because I think there's some things that are, that are in here that would really speak to us living in the age of HIV AIDS. And it begins with our legal expert. Now, understand when it says he was an expert in the law, that doesn't mean that he was necessarily a lawyer in modern day uh, Jerusalem or wherever they were when this conversation took place. In fact, it means that he's, a, uh, he's someone who spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament. It was the only testament at the time. They hadn't gotten around to writing the new one yet. That was like a joke. Good, good, good. I know, it's HIV's night, Scott. We can't laugh about anything. Are you kidding me? God gave us a sense of humor, even if mine's a little warped. So this legal specialist comes to Jesus, and his question, which is an existential question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a big one. Except later on, just a couple of verses later, you read that he's trying to justify it. So let me propose to you, the question he asks is actually a minimal question. He's not asking, really, what all can I do? It's like, what's going to get me across the finish line into eternity? What's the minimum that's required? What's going to be involved in that? Jesus says, the answer or something more interesting. He poses a question. He says to him, how do you understand the law? It's kind of a fascinating question, isn't it? Because the emphasis, how do you understand it? This guy's a legal expert, right? He studies the law of Moses, the Ten Commands, the series that we're going through up here. He studies these things in and out. He's an expert. And Jesus asks him, how do you understand it? Now understand, the law was given so that we could live righteously. That is, live up to a standard that God had set. That was the purpose. And it was also equally the purpose that we would recognize that we could not live up to that standard. And that we would need a merciful and compassionate God. So here's this man standing before him who studied this deeply. And he answers Jesus' question. Well, how do I understand it? I, he responded like this in verse 27. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
dude gets the answer right. Look at Jesus' response there in verse 28. It's like a game show. You've answered correctly. He replied, and then do this and you will live. Now, here's what I think is going on. The guy has answered the question correctly. And he has yet to figure out, because it's early in this discussion he's having, that he's actually just flunked a test. How often do we try and have all the answers and not realize we're really flunking the test? I particularly think of how Christians, oftentimes those who are followers of Jesus, are really hung up on having the right answers about everything. And often I think we're flunking the test. I know I am. It's not so much about just what I know, but what I do with what I know. And oftentimes I forget that. I love this part of the setup that Jesus is working right here because he affirms this guy, right? He says, you got the answer correct. You have understanding. And here's the best part. What does the guy do? Envision this, okay? They're in a public setting. And there's, there's, prob- there's a number of people sitting around, Jesus' disciples, who knows how many people, not in a setting too unlike this in all likelihood. These two men have stood to speak to one another, Jesus the rabbi and this other man. So they are heads above like this, above everybody else. They're having this conversation. So this guy, Jesus asks him, he asks a question. Jesus responds uh, with a question. I get the question right because Jesus told me I did. So what's going through his head right now? I got it going on. Because this is a this this Rabbi Jesus, he's a big deal, and he's like a colleague, because he gets that I know stuff, and he just proved it to me because he asked me a second question. Because if if I ask him another question, he'll ask me a second question so I can show some more stuff I know. This is cool. And so our legal expert asks a second question, and Jesus responds in a different way. Instead of. A question, he gives a story. That's the story of Jesus responding in ways that are unexpected. He often uses it, I think, as a reminder that he is God and we are not. His ways are truly above us. They are not, our ways are not his ways, as Scripture says. When we encounter Jesus, are we ready to be surprised? That's the question. We must be ready to hear things that we do not expect and expect things that we've never heard. Things that will challenge us to respond in ways we've never imagined. That's what Jesus does to people. Tonight, friends, as you're here, I want you to think about what's the unexpected thing that Jesus might ask of us tonight? What's the thing that you are uncomfortable with that he might ask of you tonight? What's the thing that when you showed up expecting one thing, you got something different tonight? And what will you do with it? Because that's the rub. Let's go back to the story. It's got four victims. Excuse me, it's got only four characters, starting with the victim. Interesting thing about the victim. Because we know something about the other three characters. All three are identified in one way or another. Except the victim is just a victim. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't identify the ethnicity. We know the ethnicity of all three other characters. One's a Samaritan. Two are Jews. He doesn't think that's important in this case. We don't know why he's on the road. Oh, Scott, yes, we do. He's an innocent victim. He was beaten by robbers. It says that. Maybe he was double-crossed by his crew. 
Maybe they took whatever they had grabbed together and they took it with them. Jesus doesn't care. doesn't seem to think these details are important because he leaves them out of the story. He just describes him as a victim. Okay, so we got three other characters. One, a priest. Or today, you know, you might pick on a pastor. But I don't want to do that. I'm going to keep moving quickly. <laughs> Two, you got a Levite. So that's basically like a, a congregational leader or a peer, we might say, a core team member. So let me find someone to pick on. Jeremy. Um, both cases, they walked right by him. Not only did they walk by him, they went to the other side of the road. And I'm not going to be too proud up here before you. There are plenty of times when I have chosen to cross the road when I have seen somebody in need and a problem. This story rings true to me. I suspect it did to his audience even as he told this story. The last one is the Samaritan. If you aren't familiar with Samaritans, they lived in a place called Samaria, which was like a section of the land of Israel. But Israel and the Jews thought that these were their crazy cousins. And I don't mean like, oh, that's crazy Harold. He cracks me up. Wait do you see what's on with him. This dude's funny. I mean, crazy as in they're heretics. And Jews actually thought they were enemies of God, that they had taken Judaism in some very strange ways. Jesus picks that person to be the hero of the story. I was thinking a little bit about that. Who, who would be analogous to that hero in our, our day? Um, and this morning in the other services uh, uh, at Lake Avenue Church, the 11 o'clock service, I picked on Elton John when it comes to HIV AIDS. Because of our victim in the story, let's say he's not been hit over the head by robbers, but indeed is the victim of HIV AIDS. He's suffering from HIV AIDS. However he got it is however he got it. What if the, so what if the Samaritan was Elton John, a man who's certainly done a lot for the cause, raised a lot of money, raised a lot of awareness? Not a whole lot of connection to Christianity with Elton. Do you think the church would be a little uncomfortable with Jesus making him the hero of our story? I think it would. Shoot, the church is a little uncomfortable with Bono being the hero of a story, and he actually follows Jesus. In our familiar version of this story, Jesus is reaching his culmination. After telling the story to, to this uh, legal friend of ours now, he goes back to not giving an answer. He goes back and asks a question. I can just see the legal guy. He's going, okay, right. When I think he's going to ask, he doesn't. When he tells me an answer. In this case, Jesus goes back to question. Goes back to question. Look in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He asks. This is not a rhetorical question. This is the part of... Picture it again, okay? We've got this room just like this. We've got Jesus on one side. We've got this, this expert of the law, this, this Orthodox Jew on the other side. They're facing each other. Jesus has just asked him this question after telling the story. Do you suspect the man was fairly humiliated? Because he represented the Jews. And they were, the, they were not the good guys in the story. And in front of all these people, this man who could have been humiliated, I think was humbled. It's a subtle difference. Humiliation is destructive. But he was humbled because he had seen truth. And we know it because of the way he answers the question. It's not rhetorical. Jesus is looking for an answer. He's looking for a response. And what's he say? Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, 
the one who had mercy on him. That's the real hero. Legal boy here can't even say Samaritan. He hasn't come so far that he can give credit to the Samaritan, but he can come this far to say, this is the one who practiced mercy, who looked most like the character of God in this story, was the one least likely to exhibit the character of God. And Jesus, when he says, now go and do likewise, I think it's a blessing. I think he looked him right in the eye and he recognized how far that man had come. It was a start. And he said, now go and do likewise. He didn't say to think about it. He didn't say to reflect upon it. He didn't say to pray about it. He didn't say to write his blog entry on it. He just said, go and do. HIV AIDS burst onto the scene in the 80s. There were three basic victim groups when it arrived. There were gay men, blood transfusion recipients, and IV drug users. But in the 90s, something new began to happen. And that new thing was it was taking over a continent, the continent of Africa, the one up there with that dark stripe running right through its belly, right through the word neighbor. It started in southern Africa and moved rapidly to the north, went across the seas to Asia and the rest of the world. And during the expansion of this disease, the church, this thing that all these followers of Jesus, that we are a part of, not this church, but all the churches together, where were they? Because largely they sat silent. We sat silent on our good days. And on our bad days, we were pretty judgmental. A lot of folks brought a lot of passion to the topic without a lot of calm passion to the reality. While the church was arguing about this modern day plague that was sweeping that whole map, a lot of folks in the world who have no relation to Christianity were doing something about it. Providing the kind of care the Samaritan provided. But in the mid-90s, that began to change. Churches began to change the story and the conversation. They began to have a conversation and say, where is God in this? What would he have his missionary people do? For God is a God of mission. What would his people do? The global facts related to AIDS are sobering. Our guest is going to share a few of those with you in the midst of her conversation. The Cambodia story, a place that we have, we have prayed for, that many of us in this room have gone to, and I pray that this summer many of us in this room will be there. It is sobering. It is part of their story. And it's part of the unknown story. Cambodia has the highest HIV infection rate in Southeast Asia. I want to tell you, when, when a team decided that if, if we were going to do a humanitarian project, where would we do it? We looked at a lot of things. There were a number of us who'd made this decision. This team looked at a number of things. One of the statistics that blew us away, 90 cents of, back in 2004, 90 cents of every dollar spent on HIV AIDS. It was only four years ago. 90 cents of every dollar went to Africa. The entire rest of this map split one dime. And I'm guessing most of that dime was probably in North America where we can afford treatment. That's how a pandemic runs like a wildfire. The question of who is my neighbor causes us pause. But the story of Jesus in the time of HIV AIDS is the same old story. It's compassion. It's rescue. It's redemption. That's the story we get to engage with. That's the story I want us to engage with. And that's what I want us to think a little bit about tonight. I want to introduce to you uh, a friend. Uh, Debbie Dortzbach is part of the World Relief Team. She's the director, the international director for their HIV AIDS ministry. 
Uh, Debbie's background is she has a master's in nursing, a master's in public health. She was a missionary in East Africa for many, many years. She co-authored a book this past year called The AIDS Crisis, What We Can Do. Christianity Today, in a one-line, in the midst of a big review, had this one great line. It said, skip the next international AIDS conference, just read this book. Um, it's been part of her story now for many years, and I am thrilled that Debbie made this trip out from Baltimore to be with us tonight to talk a little bit about some love stories in the time of HIV-AIDS. Would you please welcome Debbie Bofa. Did you know we are neighbors? Maybe you thought I live in Baltimore, and I do. But every time I go to Cambodia and fill out a visa application that asks the city of my birth, I write P-A-S-A-D-E-N-A. I am your neighbor. And I'm really thankful to be home with you. I'm not sure I look like your neighbor anymore. I'm not sure I understand my home state like it was, however many years ago that was, that I was born here. But I do feel so welcomed here at Lake Avenue. And I am grateful to come home. Because this is really an evening about the neighborhood. This is really a discussion that Jesus leads us into to understand what community is about. And it doesn't really have anything to do with our place of birth or our appearance or the state of our health, or pocketbook and bank account, our educational accomplishments. It has nothing to do about that, really. When Jesus asked this question, who is your neighbor? None of those things came up. In fact, he addressed them in a much deeper and soul-searching way, the kind of way that I've already heard us sing about tonight, the kind of way that says, okay, God, this is really about the art of losing myself in your community, in your neighborhood, so that you alone would be exalted. What we didn't sing was that it's also an act of losing ourselves. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan does show us. It is an art, to be sure. It's also a consecrated act that doesn't just occur on a Monday or Tuesday or Sunday, but every hour, every moment that we live. Let me tell you about some of our neighborhood. 
in our neighborhood is a 10-year-old boy. I don't remember his name. I'm getting too old for that. But his home is Phnom Penh, and I found him stretched on a blue plastic sheet in the hot sun, in the shade of a building, sitting in a group of other boys, 11, 12, 13, 15 years old. They come weekly and meet with their mentor and friend to talk about, yeah, what's it like to grow up as a boy in this neighborhood and become a man? And in those discussions, those, that place of security and safety to talk about deep things because of the wonderful trust that developed in that group. This 10-year-old guy pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket, plopped it in the middle of the group and said, look what I found in the garbage dump today. He'd been searching in the dump all day, looking for some kind of treasure that he could sell and put food on the table for his mom and his family that evening. He was 10 years old. He didn't find any treasure. He found trash. He found a pornographic book that he crumpled up in his hand and brought to the group and said, I, I don't do this yet. But what is it? That opened up a long conversation. A necessary conversation because all too often, younger and younger children are drawn into the whole sex trade, the whole lure of some kind of pleasure that sometimes is even introduced to them by their uncle, their father, an older brother who may take them to the red light district for their first experience. When we began to grapple with the whole issue of HIV AIDS in Asia, recognizing how it had already devastated Africa, we saw clearly that that cycle had to be broken early. That we had to go to those 10-year-old boys and help them understand the beauty and wonder of how God made them. The anticipation of becoming a man that would shoulder the responsibilities that God would give him. That would love a woman as God wanted him to love her in marriage. That would treasure that gift of sexuality for life and protect his own body to enjoy it in his own family. He was 10. But in that group, there was heated discussion about what it all meant, about what they had already heard and seen, about what love is all about, about what all these changing hormones meant. 
And this 10-year-old boy crumpled up the paper and threw it back in the garbage dump. Instead, his mentor, his neighbor, took out the scriptures, opened it, and explained the beauty of God's understanding of how he made us and how he delighted in how he made us and how he had sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to give us a life that was fresh and vibrant and joyful and new and beyond any kind of physical feeling that would be temporary and momentary and that could result in a kind of illness that would even end up in death. And that as we follow this king, we would be joyful also and find deep contentment and resource in him. The next day, I went to the girls' group. They sat on a similar mat in the same village. And there they talked about, well, a little different twist of things, as you might expect. They came with questions like, you know what? My boyfriend told me, this was a 14-year-old speaking, that he loves me. What do you think? And the girls kind of batted that question around a little bit. And their leader, a beautiful Christian married woman who meets with them every single week, began to continue that conversation and talk about, so what do you think he meant? What kind of relationship does he have with you? How long will it last? What does he want from you? How long will he commit to you? What are your goals in life? What are you choosing in life for your future? What decisions could you make that will influence your future? She talked about what it meant to become God's woman. God's way. There was very little that wasn't openly discussed. Why? Because the virus of HIV was ripping across that country, attacking younger and younger ages, and the cycle had to be broken. But I might ask you, in your neighborhood here, in California, there's been an awful lot of talk of AIDS. And actually, you've been pioneers in medical advances, in reducing stigma, in addressing it openly and honestly, in putting money behind necessary programs, in educating the youth. In so many ways, you've led not only the nation, but the world from this state. So maybe it's kind of past now. Maybe we don't really need to be so concerned about it. We've addressed it already. Oh, that's exactly what the evil one would like us to believe. The minute we let our guard down, the minute we think we have arrived the minute that we think the behavior issues are rather simple and can be addressed in a short way, 
We are ripe and vulnerable once again for temptation and attack and destruction. It is also this state that spreads all over the world from Hollywood, explicit pictures and damning ideas about the beauty of sex that is God-given and to be God-protected, about who women are and how they need to be honored, about what the family is and the richness and importance of faithfulness. Yes, there's some work to do in our neighborhood. I also went to another home in Phnom Penh, this time accompanied by a woman named Sunkanthia. We went to visit a woman living with HIV. In fact, she was in the latter stages of AIDS. Her body was stripped thin. I didn't even know how she could hold a pencil let alone a cup, to her lips. But Sunkanthia was a member of the local church who had been expressing her newfound love in Jesus, who let Jesus control her life and give her the joy, the act of losing herself in him. And that meant going and finding the places where he had not been heard of before. The places where the neighbors would say, oh no, you can't enter that house. That house is cursed. Where family members themselves would even put a skull and and bones on the door, written on the door to warn people, because uh, HIV is in this house, it is cursed. You can't enter. Well, to Sunken Thea, that was not a warning. <laughs> that was an invitation. That was the place that said, yeah, you know what? In here, there is darkness. There is fear. There is denial. This is where the light of Jesus needs to be. And so she boldly pushed open the door, found the people who had been forgotten by their own relatives and shunned by the neighbors and the neighborhood who had, in essence, been abandoned on the Jericho Road by the priest and the Levite. Sunkanthia found them and many others like her. They bathed the bodies. They applied the soothing oil. They warmed the tea. They changed the diarrhea-soaked sheets and cleaned up the vomit. They raised the head to give sips of water. And they returned the next day and the next day 
and the next day to do the same thing. And eventually the neighbors began to say, well, what is going on in this house? How is it that this person isn't afraid to enter and still leaves? And born out of that testimony came a cell church. A response of people that were hungry, hungry for love that wasn't a few seconds of a physical act, but rather an act of losing control to their creator for all eternity. Sankanthia was the Good Samaritan and those streets of Phnom Penh. And she's taught me everything I know about what it means to give. And I pray tonight that she teaches us what we need to know here in Pasadena, our neighborhood, about what it means to lose ourselves so that Jesus' honor, Jesus' love and praise is exalted. Another woman named Trub was a person that Sunkanthea visited. On a Sunday morning, we went to see her. I knew she was very close to death. She said to us in a very weak and feeble voice, please, I'm afraid to die. And I don't want to die alone. And Sunkanthea hovered over her body and whispered into her ear, you're not alone. Jesus is here, and he will usher you, (laughs) usher you right to him. You don't need to be afraid. And we're going to hold your hand until he takes it. And they did. And Sunkanthea's grandmother was there weeping. Her mother was nowhere to be seen. If she had children, I have no idea where they were. She had no husband. She had slept with many men. (sighs) But she found her husband in Jesus Christ. And it confessed him as her Lord and Savior. And she went as a bride, adorned to meet the bridegroom. We wept, too, at the little church that she belonged to when, after having made her coffin right there in her little house and finding the flowers and getting the picture, finding the motorbike and the wagon that became the hearse, 
an accompanying walking through the dusty streets to the church where we had the service, we wept for her. Why does it have to keep on? Why do millions of people have to die from something that's entirely preventable? Why are countries that are deep in poverty already driven to deeper levels through this crisis? In Africa today, the number one killer is not malaria. It's not diarrhea. It's HIV and AIDS. And what would happen in that vast, wonderful continent of Asia, if it sweeps across that continent as it has Africa, we dare not imagine. Oh, but there was hope. There was joy at the funeral of Trump. The young people danced a beautiful Khmer dance with their arms in the air and twirling and, and swinging and, and chanting praise to Jesus. And they did a drama about HIV. And the pastor preached about the importance of, of understanding this disease and of becoming active and involved as members and of how to prevent it. And the mother, the mother who had introduced shrub to the whole sex industry in a multi-generational way sat in the front row of a church she had never before entered and so did the grandmother after the service we took her coffin put it back in the makeshift hearse and went through the dusty streets to the crematorium All this happened in the same day. You can't wait in the slums of Phnom Penh, in the heat of Asia, to cremate a body. And as we gathered at the barrier, the fence, where now we had to truly say goodbye, And watch as her coffin was rolled into the crematorium where the fire was hot. Her grandmother, in uncontrollable tears, was met by another church member who came alongside her at the fence and explained to her right there that she didn't have to weep anymore. She could know right then the forgiveness of Jesus for her own life, and she could embrace that peace and love and joy forever, even as Trub had done. The Holy Spirit entered her life, transformed her immediately, And the last words any of us heard at that fence as we said goodbye to Trub were the words of her grandmother as she shouted to her, Trub, 
I'll see you. I'll see you again. This is our message in our neighborhood. Who's your neighbor? What message will you bring? When you talk about the art of losing yourself in my heart, my soul, and giving you control, what do you mean? What act will you give back to the Lord to demonstrate that that is a refined art in your life? What barriers and fences will you tear down that keep you from acting, from showing Jesus that you love him You love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor, in your neighborhood, as yourself. We want to talk about some ways that can respond. Oftentimes we, we, we hear news and we don't know what to do about it. Um, we hear numbers like there are 25 million who've died from HIV AIDS since its identification. What do I do about that? There are 40 million people today living with HIV AIDS. What do I do about that? You know, usually it begins with a very small step, not a very big one. And we've got a few. Do we have the slides? Um, a few responses I, I, I want to offer to you to, to, to think about and consider. We've already talked about this a little bit before. Maybe this is your summer. Anybody here speak English? Okay, four or five of you, good. Um, because if you can speak, you just qualified yourself to go to Cambodia this summer and teach English to Cambodian staff. These are folks who are doing the kind of HIV, AIDS education and care that you heard about in those groups coming alongside mentoring kids. Uh, uh, Razme right here. Um, he's a star with a couple folks in the warehouse. Um, he already has great English. They've gotten to know him pretty well. Um, but to spend two to four weeks in Cambodia just teaching English and living with these folks in their office and in their home, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing experience. Let me show you another opportunity. We talked about these kits next week right here Saturday in the warehouse. We're going to build and assemble these HIV caregiver kits it's a big plastic box. You've probably seen it up here before with one of us. And we're just stuffing it full of stuff. A bunch of things are being brought in this week. We need folks to help uh, assemble those. We've got one-hour shifts. You can stay the whole time. A bunch of you already are volunteering to help organize it. Thank you. That's another way to get involved. It's a small step. It's about little steps and big steps. And then lastly, um, the prayer walk. This, this prayer guide, this 30-day prayer guide that BJ prayed from tonight, It's from the heartbeat of a number of folks here in the warehouse community. And to be a part of the walk on April 19th that specifically is memorializing the day that Phnom Penh was emptied of 2 million people a little over 30 years ago because the Khmer Rouge said, we're getting back to the land because we are people of the land. 
That led to the death of 20%, maybe as much as 30%, some estimates go, of all the Cambodian people in a four-year period. Some of our family here in Warehouse want to commemorate that by doing a prayer walk in Pasadena through some symbolic places and pray for the kingdom to come. We, we talk about Cambodia, and, and Debbie, even as you were telling stories about they came to the church and did this. Friends, if I took you to Cambodia tonight and, and gave you, uh, I don't know, three days to find 50 churches, and I would pay you all $400 of all of my savings, I would match it against anything you wanted to lay down because you couldn't do it. One and a half percent at best are followers of Jesus in this place. So when we talk about prayer, we're talking about seeing the kingdom come in compassion to stop oppression in lots of ways. There's little steps you can take. I want to show you a video of a man who took some, st- some steps in his own journey. He's a pastor in Rwanda. This film actually was made by one of our own, Brent Mahanes. And, and, <laughs> I just married you guys. Brent Gutchall and Dave Mahanes. <laughs> Um, and th- this is the story of a pastor taking a few steps and then a few more and then a few more and seeing how God's going to use it. The unexpected journey. You hear stuff from Jesus. Sometimes what you hear is unexpected and things change. Take a look and then I'll come back up and we'll begin to wrap. These people have hope. How many are lost? How many are suffering? How many have AIDS? I've read the statistics. Many people I see right now in this crowd have AIDS. But what are statistics? We all have lost a brother, a parent, cousin or a friend we are all affected my name is Straton Yata. it means I come with gifts but sometimes I don't feel like I have much to bring when Jesus met a blind man in the street he was not concerned with how the man became blind Jesus loved sick people even when everyone else ran away. AIDS. He has AIDS. I don't know why. Did the doctor give him a bad blood? Did he make a sinful choice? Or does it matter? Maybe it shouldn't matter. He's sick. Would I look at him differently if he had cancer? And his daughter, soon, she will be an orphan and her life will be poverty. She has no choice in this matter. What am I to do? What am I to do? I am a pastor. 
I'm their pastor. They go to my church. They live in my community. I can't do much. I'm not a doctor. I do not have the cure. But here I am. I used to tell my congregation to help people who are sick. I thought that was my only job, to preach about compassion. But what if true compassion is to put your legs in someone else's shoes, to walk where they walk? I did not have this kind of compassion before. I started to talk about AIDS at church. I started visiting people in their home. I just show up and I cannot do this alone. This is Deborah. Deborah is a volunteer from our church. God touched her heart. There are many from our church like Deborah. Body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. This man lost his wife several years ago. She died of AIDS. Then he got sick too. Now he's at home and cannot work. He's dying, but his children do not know it. What will happen to the children? The children, they are HIV positive. They don't know it yet. What do I say to them? But I can be here, touch them, pray. Then it happens. Their face will change. You see some joy in their eyes. It is good. The hope comes again. I did nothing tangible to help them. I was just there. The church began to show this kind of compassion. Those who are infected are afraid. So we held their hearts. Those who are infected feel alone. So we visited them. Those who are infected are confused. So we canceled them. Those who are infected feel rejected. So we accepted them. We loved people who were happy. A few years ago, I did nothing. People in my own community were dying. They were dying every day. They died alone. They died afraid. They died rejected by the church. A few years ago, I thought preaching was enough. That was my compassion. But if we don't do something, who will? If we don't show God's love, who will? If we don't show up, who will? Thank <laughs> you.
if if we don't show up, who will? That's a pastor who's been on a journey, and in some sense, we're all taking that walk and that journey with him, um, learning along the way. Uh, besides those ways that you had to respond tonight, as you go tonight, I'm going to give you one other way to respond. Lake Avenue Church and this partnership, which we have with World Relief in Cambodia, it's many-tiered. It's this HIV thing. It's it's stopping human trafficking. It's it's building on top of micro-loans. It's about bringing all these elements together to see country-level wide change come and seeing the Church of Jesus Christ birthed in the midst of this through an amazing cell church movement. To do that, we're involved in a partnership every year. And we come to this weekend a year at Lake Avenue Church. And we ask Lake Avenue Church Warehouse Community to be a part of that to make that possible. If you want to be a part of that tonight, as you go out, there will be a table out there with a bucket or something on it where you can leave some cash if you want to contribute. And here's a really cool thing. Somebody at Lake has been so burdened with HIV and AIDS and the response or lack of response of the church. We're so excited that we were focusing on that this weekend, that they said they'd match every dollar, 50 cents on every dollar, up to $50,000 given. So if you want to give tonight, whatever you're going to give is going to go 50% further than it is right now in your pocket. That's someone who's taken a step that they could take. I offer that to you. Friends, we have one of our warehouse community in Phnom Penh, Kate Peeper. Yeah, a little love for Kate. This stuff, this conversation, and this colleague, we're all in the same battle together. I want to encourage us to remember to pray for Kate. Just because she's out of sight doesn't mean she should be out of mind. And hopefully in the not-so-distant future, in the days ahead, maybe we'll Skype her in and have a little video conference with her and get caught up on life in Phnom Penh with Kate, especially before some of us head off to Cambodia this summer to teach English. Out in the lobby, you can meet with World Relief Good guy, David Castillo. You can go to the table on the other side and find out about all this stuff that we've been talking about. You can hang out here and speak to Debbie a little bit before I have to run her off to LAX to catch a flight, a red-eye back home to the East Coast. Thanks for being a community of concern. Jesus says thank you for being a community of concern. Let's just go ahead and see if we can change the world. What do you say?